Well, as we do come to the preaching of God's Word this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we are picking up where Pastor Cosby left off last Lord's Day. We're looking at Colossians chapter 3, and we're looking especially at verses 5 through 11, but for the sake of context, we'll read down to verse 17. Colossians 3, 5 through 17, as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Here, uh, and I would invite you to stand if you're able, at home and both here in this congregation, for the reading of God's Word. And as you are standing, uh, I would just note that the Apostle has set out the magnificent riches of Jesus Christ, the glories, the beauties of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ as Creator and as Redeemer, He has enumerated the many blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus in chapter 2. He's explained all that he's accomplished on the cross, how he's disarmed principalities and powers, how he has taken the handwriting of a requirement that was against us out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, how we have died with him, and most recently, how we have been raised with him in his resurrection. And so we are now to seek those things which are above where Christ is and set our minds on those things above. And Paul is now going to explain what that looks like, to set your mind on things above where Christ is. And he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Some translations add, perhaps correctly, upon the sons of disobedience. Then Paul says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. You may be seated. Well, on this day, November 1st, 1521, just four years after Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the church door, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, he was in hiding. Uh, Some of his friends had come. They had pretended to be officials coming to, to sweep him away to prison. And in, this, uh, in this, this fake abduction, they took Luther and they put him in hiding. And, and we're not entirely sure where he was in hiding. Luther was arguably the most hated man 
in the world at that time. He had the entire papacy trying to kill him. He had many other people in Germany and throughout Europe seeking his life. He was the most despised man um, on that continent for sure at that time. And he's in hiding and he writes letters to certain friends. And one of those friends that he has is a man named Nicholas Gerbel, who was a Christian lawyer who had taken an, an interest in Luther's writings and who wanted to support Luther. And so Luther uh, is reaching out to him from his um, place of isolation where he is hidden away. And he opens up his heart to this man to talk about what's going on inside him. Now, if you're the most hated person in Europe in 1521, um, if we're honest, we're probably most concerned with who's going to find us and kill us. But that's not what Luther is most concerned about. In fact, Luther wishes he was not in hiding. He's only doing it at the, at the behest of his friends. But Luther writes in this letter on this day in 1521 to his friend Nicholas Gerbel. And by the way, it is Reformation Sunday, which is why this is important to us. Um, Luther says, in this leisurely solitude, I am exposed to a thousand devils. It is so much easier to fight the devil incarnate, that is people, than the spirits of iniquity. Often I fall, but the right hand of the Most High raises me up again. Isn't that interesting? What is most concerning to Luther during this time of what he calls um, leisurely solitude is not all of those people who are trying to kill him, but all of the blackness and depravity that he sees raging in his own heart against which he is fighting. Um, it's very instructive to us to see what's going on inside the heart of one so mightily used by God. Not worrying about the devil incarnate, people without, but worrying about those thousand devils raging within. Now, I tell you that both because it's Reformation Sunday and also because the Apostle Paul here is going to call us to take special note of all of those evils that rage within and to be vigilant in living according to our true identity in Christ, that we would live as men and women who have been raised up with Christ, who are setting our minds on things above, and what that means for us in the here and now today. Um, the apostle here is going to give us several lists of what we'll call uh, vices. He, Paul is uh, very frequently setting out a sort of catalog of depravity uh, throughout his epistles so that um, God's people can understand what they are to, to fight against and mortify and put off. And here he is going to give two very specific lists um, in the first part of this section. He will move on and he will give us list of virtues that we're not going to look at in great detail this morning, but he will talk about those list of virtues in the forthcoming verses. But he is essentially going to do two things this morning. He is going to tell us that we are to put off the vices of the old man and that we are to put on the virtues of the new man. Very simple division. To put off the vices of the old man, to put on the virtues of the new man. Now, um, Paul has told us that we have been raised with Christ. He's made that very clear. We're not waiting for a resurrection. We are resurrected people. When, when the Lord takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, he brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that is the beginning of the resurrection life that we will experience for all eternity. And it's interesting that when we experience a resurrection in Christ, 
the beginning of a new life in union with him, we get a clothing to go along with it. He clothes us. Now, Paul is going to love the clothing imagery. He's going to use it in Romans. He's going to use it here in Colossians. He'll use it in Ephesians. It's one of Paul's favorite illustrations to help us understand what we are and then how we ought to behave ourselves in light of what we are in Christ, having died with him and been raised with him. And as he does that, Paul begins to set out this catalog of depravity. And and he's going to say in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you, and then he'll list a number of things. And then notice he'll say in verse 8, that you must put them all away or off. And then notice he will say again in verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self. Now, um, Paul is going to do something very interesting here. He is first of all going to tell us that All of the things that we're to put off, they are things that belong to the realm of the earthly. So all of the all of the actions, all of the all of the sin, all of the evil that lurks in our hearts belongs to what is earthly. And that's that is by way of contrast to what is heavenly. He said, seek those things that are above. So so and this is so helpful, I think, that that we are not trying to be so heavenly minded that it doesn't have a bearing on our lives and our interactions, but that precisely the opposite, that when we are setting our minds on things above, it it will lift us off of what is earthly, and it will enable us to put away and put to death what is earthly. Um, You know, when we are not in Christ, we are walking, Paul says, according to the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that the whole world, John says in First John, is under the sway of the evil one, that we by nature are carried away with that. I know that was true for me before I was converted. I don't have to know anything about you to know that that's true of you. Paul says we all, we all once walked. Um, according to the course of this world. Now he says, put to death, mortify what is earthly in you. Now, he's going to give us these two lists of vices. And and we first have to ask the question, why these two particular lists? What, what, because if you look in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, if you look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, and and those catalogs of depravity there, they are much fuller, and they, they are much uh, more varied in nature. And these seem very, very specific. Sexual morality, impurity, uncleanness, evil desire, those all belong together. They're all sort of one in the same, different species of the same uh, sin. And then he'll say anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Again, very similar uh, nuances of the same category of sin. Why these two categories? Well, one answer may be that the false teachers that Paul was combating may have been characterized by these things. Um, Their lives may have been characterized by sexual morality and anger. We don't know. Uh, It may be that these were sins that were particular to that congregation and that word had come to Paul that these things were sort of rampant among these new Gentile believers and that Paul needed to address them specifically. We don't know. What we can say is that these are sins that we so painfully know 
dwell in all of our hearts. Um, these are sins that are common to all of us. Um, the first thing we have to do if we want to mortify sin and put off the old man is we have to admit that we have the seed of every sin in our hearts. That if we were left to ourselves, there's no end in what we would do. Um, I had a friend, he's a minister of the gospel, who said to me once, you know, we often say, but there for the grace of God go I. And he said, but there are some things that, I mean, almost mocking that statement. And I thought, oh my, what a dangerous place to be in. What a dangerous place to be in. Um, anytime we catch ourselves saying, I can't believe so-and-so did that, we need to stop and realize what we're not acknowledging about what we are and what we can do. Um, that's, that's the first thing we have to do if we're going to put off is we have to acknowledge that we have all of this within, just like Luther, right? That, that Luther said he had a thousand devils of iniquity, a thousand devils of iniquity within. Um, there's an apocryphal uh, statement of Luther. I, it's, it's not in his writings. It may be paraphrased from it, but he said he was more afraid of the Pope within than of the Pope without. Um, we ought to look very seriously at this. You know, Paul is also acknowledging, isn't he, that Christians are always going to have an ongoing battle with these sins. That's, that's also a vital thing for us to understand. If we're going to put off, then we have to realize this is not just a list of things that that once were true, Paul will use that language, these were once, you once walked according to these things. These are things that we are every day beset by. They, uh, Pastor Brian mentioned in the sermon last Sunday that we don't just seek the things above where Christ is once and then stop doing it on a daily basis. That's something we are called to do continually. And, and we are grappling with these sins continually in differing degrees and and differing dimensions and manifestations in our lives. But every Christian, every single Christian is struggling with the thousand devils within. Um, if we ever get to a place where we think we're not, that's a very, very scary place to be. And so Paul is saying, take seriously. These are things that mark the earthly old man. These are things that, that mark what belonged to your former manner of life. Now, let's look just briefly at these because... Uh, another thing that Paul is going to teach us here that we have to do if we're going to put off the old man with his deeds is that we have to be able to identify particular sins. It's not enough that I say, um, I'm a sinner. It's not enough that I confess generally that I, I am sinful. Um, the Westminster Standards put it so well when they, they teach us that we are to confess particular sins particularly. I can never say that. Um, specific sins um, to the Lord, that, that we have to be men and women and boys and girls who go to the Lord and say, oh God, have mercy on me, I have a lustful heart. Oh God, have mercy on me, I have a greedy and covetous heart. Oh God, have mercy on me, I have an angry heart. Oh God, have mercy on me, I, I have a slanderous heart. I have a heart that loves to tear others down. Have mercy on me. Forgive the sin of my iniquity. Um, Paul is teaching us to name these sins. You know, 
we live in a society that, that has no concept of sexual immorality, even though they know the righteous judgment of God. Um, and, and we can be tempted to, to be desensitized by a culture that doesn't want to call anything sin. Um, I think this has been a long time coming. Uh, my wife served as a, a teacher in a Christian school when we were very young and uh, first married. And on one occasion, she caught a student cheating um, in class and so contacted this person's parents. And the parents were irate at my wife and did not believe her. And, um, and uh, she said to these parents, well, I just wanted you to know what, what your child was doing so that this doesn't become a bigger problem, that it doesn't become a continual problem, to which the parents said, oh, I'm sure it will happen again. Basically, you'll accuse my daughter. So, so uh, this got taken to the headmaster of the school, who sat down with my wife and said, now, what did you say? And my wife said, uh, well, I, I reached out to these parents and told them, you know, I caught your daughter cheating. She was very gracious about it, but just thought you might want to know this. And, and he said, well, see, it would have been better if you had said it appeared as though our daughter, th th their daughter might have been glancing at someone else's paper. Uh, to which I said to my wife, no, it would have been better if... He had said, so they were stealing. Because even cheating is softening what it is. You're, you're stealing the work of another. Um, we, we don't like to call sin what it is. Paul here calls sin very specifically what it is. Notice, he, and this makes us uncomfortable. These, these are uncomfortable categories for, for anyone. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the first four of those very clearly belong together. They are different dimensions, right? The evil desire is, is the very thing from which the sexual immorality springs. The, the impurity is the thing that accompanies the evil desires and results in the sexual immorality. Um, this, is, this is something that James talks about, right? That desire, evil desire, it, it, it conceives and it brings forth sin and and it comes from within, and it, it wells up within. In many respects, all of these sins in this first list, all these vices are those things that are more internal. They're going on inside. They may not manifest themselves uh, externally. They, they often do, but, but they, they manifest themselves inside. They dwell in the heart. This is why Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her um, is already committed adultery. It's... it's those internal evil passions. Paul doesn't say sexual intimacy is, is an ungodly thing. God has given us sexual desires. Those are good and right. But, but in our depravity, we pervert what he's given us. And then the question for us is, how does that connect with the very end of verse 5? And covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, uh, very simply, we could think about it this way. Um, the 10th commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. The first commandment is you shall have no other God before me. And what the Lord is telling us here is that those bookends actually come full circle back together 
so that whenever I am not content with what the God, I am not to have any other God beyond, has given me and I'm discontent and I think I deserve more, then I've fallen into idolatry. Um, and if you ask the question, what is the idol that I'm worship, worshiping, you're worshiping the idol of self. So when we are greedy for money, Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. It's idolatry. When we are covetous for someone who's not our spouse, that is idolatry. We are, we are seeking to please the God of self. Um, it's a frightening thought how all of us are guilty of that. You know, that's why Paul says, put these things off. They're always there. They're always ready. Um, it's hard to explain the, the relationship between the old man and his deeds and the new person that we are in Christ because there's no, there's no apt illustration to explain what's going on, but we're carrying around with us an old, mortified, crucified corpse that we are ever wanting to put back on even though those are not the clothes that we're supposed to be wearing. Um, and so with regard to covetousness, the writer to the Hebrews will say, um, uh, be content with what you have. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what you have. And then what's the solution? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that when we're not worshiping the God of self, we're not wanting to wear the fleshly desires of self. Um, I heard recently someone put it this way, whenever a man or a woman leave their spouse and um, they go to another new spouse and they say, well, you know, I, I've never loved someone like I love this person. This individual said, no, you've never loved yourself so much, which is why you do that. We love ourselves. We need to recognize that those sins that accord with our covetousness are idolatry. And then notice, if you would look at this next list in verse 8, the apostle says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now these are sins that have a more pronounced external uh, manifestation to them. Uh, I want to say by way of preface, some of the angriest people I've ever met in my life are also some of the quietest. So it's not a blanket statement. You can be very quiet and full of ang anger and malice and all kinds of evil toward others, but these are heart sins that are aimed toward others. These are, these are things that look outward to others. And in fact, both of these categories, Paul is going to say they, they, have a, they have respect to the covenant community, sexual immorality, impurity, Evil desire, anger, wrath, malice. These are things that affect our relationships in the home, in the church. Um, Paul's going to say, do not lie to one another. Don't be something that you're not toward one another because that's not how we're to live life together in the Christian community. Um, notice in that second list, that it sort of moves from the anger to the slander and the unedifying talk about others. How guilty 
all of us have been, how guilty I have been of that, saying things to tear other believers down. Someone said, you know, people always say, well, that, that was just a, sorry, I slipped up. No, you manifested what was in your heart. Um, when we do that, that's a manifestation of what's inside. Um, when Paul says there in verse 9, do not lie to one another, I don't think that he's just speaking about individual lies that someone may tell another, but that what he's saying is don't pretend to be someone that you're not living among the fellowship of other believers. Don't let your life be a lie. Um, and that means that when we are struggling with sin, we should be able to admit that to brothers and sisters. That we, we shouldn't pretend to be something we're not. If we're struggling, we should be able to go and say, I'm struggling, pray for me. Would you pray for me? James tells us. If, if, we're, if we're ensnared in sin, we, we should pray for one another. And so there's a sense where the whole of the Christian's life lived as new creatures in the new community of God's people that Jesus has created through his death and his resurrection should be characterized by putting off all of those things that used to mark it and by putting on the virtues of the new man. Now, um, I want us to very briefly look at uh, that aspect as it's introduced in verses 9 through 11. Now, uh, I think it's possible, and this is something we have to really grapple with in verse 11. How does that fit? How does it fit that Paul moves from putting off and then talking about putting on the new self, and then, and then he says, here there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Why, why introduce all those categories? Why say here in, in the covenant community, in the, in, the, in the collective body of believers, we are not defined by all of these things that once defined us? Well, I think it's very likely that these new converts were still bent on looking at each other according to externals. They were, they were still looking at each other and saying, his identity is he was a Greek. Her identity is she was a Jew. And, and they, were, they were acting earthly. That was, a, that was an earthly manifestation, just like all those vices are members of their earthly body. It was reflective of how they had not really appropriated to themselves what they really were in Christ. So... Notice what Paul says. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him. Now, there's a few things Paul's going to tell us before ever coming to a list of virtues, which we'll see next week, Lord willing. But, but he is fundamentally going to say, in the death of Jesus, something happened us. We were united to him. When he died, we died. Our old man has been put away. Paul puts it in the clearest term in Galatians. He says, you have been crucified with Christ. Not we're waiting to be, not we're wanting to be. It's already a thing that's true of you. We have been raised with him. He has already made us new creatures. He's already made us into people that love what he loves. You know, that's that's really the heartbeat of what Paul's going to say is if we're in Christ, if we belong to Christ, 
then the things that Christ values most are the things we are going to value the most. Um, and, and he will go further and he will say who Christ is, what, what, he's, what he is, kind and compassionate, meek, gentle, full of love, that that's the things that we are to put on. One of the wonderful things about this passage is Paul is not teaching a sort of philosophical asceticism. So he's not, he's, he's actually refuted a counterfeit version of this when he has said, don't, don't appropriate to yourself a mentality of don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Those things may have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed humility, but they're against no val- they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul doesn't say, stop doing these things, just avoid these things, and you'll be good. Um, that would be to do what the man in Jesus' parable did, who swept his house, he cleaned himself up, he stopped doing what he used to do, and then seven demons came in, and the last state of that man, Jesus said, was worse than the first. So if there's, not, if there's not a replacement of what is old with what is new, then we haven't actually succeeded in the Christian life. And the way we do that is by remembering what already happened to us. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Now, this is the interesting thing. While we already are new creatures in Christ, we nevertheless need that continual renewal. So he doesn't say, you're a new creature. Why would you act that way? If you act that way, you're not a new creature because new creatures don't act that way. In fact, he's telling us new creatures can act like the old man. And he's saying we need to be renewed in knowledge. Um, Matthew Henry puts it this way, the new man is said to be renewed in knowledge because an ignorant soul cannot be a good soul. An ignorant soul cannot be a good soul. That means I need to know everything I can from God's word about who Christ is, what he's done, who I am in him, what he's done for me, and now how I ought to respond to that. I'm constantly needing to be reminded of who I am because we so easily forget who we are, don't we? As we rub shoulders with people in the world, we forget that we are not like people in the world. We forget what we are. We get drawn back, don't we, to the world when we forget. Sinclair Ferguson says, whenever the Christian forgets his or her true identity, he or she ends up at sea with regard to the Christian life. We're never going to make progress if we're just looking to abstain in some sort of suppressive way, but have forgotten what has already happened to us. Um, I love this, by the way. Notice that last phrase in verse 11, and this sort of sums up the entire book, and it sums up the section so well. Notice that Paul says, he says, here there is neither Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all. Christ is all and in all. If you ever want to read a helpful little book, Matthew Henry's father, Philip Henry, wrote a book, uh, it was, I think, 41 sermons that he preached that were put into publication, uh, put into writing in the 17th century, the latter part of the 17th century. They were not published until 
the mid-19th century for the first time, but the name of those sermons is Christ All in All. Christ All in All. He goes through all the things that Christ is to show us how much we need to be built up in the knowledge that Christ is all and in all. Now, I think he's also saying that in the goal and the task that we're called to in putting on the new man, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, being who we truly are, Paul is also telling us that the way we view one another needs to be that Christ is in you and Christ is in me. So that the way I look at you and the way you look at me and the way that we look at each other ought to be Christ is in that man or woman. It's as if I've become Jesus, Jesus has become me. I say that in the most reverent way possible because of union with Christ. He indwells his people, so I ought to treat you that way and you ought to treat me that way. Now, let me just say this this morning. If we actually did that consistently, wow, how that would affect everything. How that would affect how we talk to and about one another. How we would affect how we look at one another. How we would, that would affect contentment. How that would affect me being okay with others in the church fellowship having different opinions than me. It's okay. Christ is in them. Christ is in me. Right? We're not living according to the idol of self. Um, Paul is bringing it full circle. Now, here's what I want to say to us this morning as we walk out of this. Um, we are called to take this incredibly seriously. One of the things that I failed to point out, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, is that Paul says there is one other thing that you need um, to be resolute in putting off the deeds of the flesh, and that is this. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It does you no good. It does me no good to push from our minds the idea and the truth that God's wrath must necessarily be poured out on all sin and evil. It, does us, it doesn't help us to take seriously the need to put off the old man with his deeds and to put those things to death. Now, that could be a uh, frightening thought. Um, I think that we need to recognize that God wants us to view our sin the way he views it. Now, now, will you view your sin the way God views it by Paul simply saying, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, has not yet come. He's speaking about the forthcoming judgment day. He's talking about what is inevitable. He's talking about what is just and right. And, and that's a frightening thought, but but how do I really come to understand what my sin looks like before God? I look at Christ crucified. I look at the cross. And when I see Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer. There's no answer. I am left to understand it's because of my sin he is forsaken. It's because of the evil of my heart. It's because of all the sins that Paul has mentioned in those two lists that Jesus bore all of those on himself and then he took the eternal wrath of God on himself and he propitiated it. He turned it away. 
Now, I want, to, I want you to think about this seriously this morning. One sin, just one, and we have committed millions of sins, one sin is deserving of the eternal, infinite and eternal wrath and judgment of God. That's why hell is eternal. Hell is eternal because God must necessarily judge those who have sinned against an eternal being who is infinitely and eternally holy. And no sinner in hell will ever satisfy the justice of God and propitiate the wrath of God. But there is one who is himself God, who took to himself a human nature, and in his flesh he bore the eternal wrath of God. He took hell for our sin. That's, that's one reason we don't have to fear the forthcoming wrath of God. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He says, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. We are to take it seriously. Our sin deserves that. We are to be motivated by that to put off the old, to put on the new, to be who we already are. But, but we are not to live in sort of paralyzing terror of the wrath of God if we're in Jesus. Then what Paul is saying, and this is very important, Paul is saying at one and the same time, take your sin with the utmost seriousness and don't forget who you are in Christ. Take your sin with the utmost seriousness. You know, I think of the hymn, um, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, and I love that line, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here can view its nature rightly, here its, its, uh, its view can estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bore the awful load. Tis the Lord, the Son, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and Son of God. We look at the cross. We go to the cross. That means when I have failed, and we have all failed, to put the deeds of our flesh to death and to put them off, we must flee to the cross. We must go back to the Lord. We must confess specific sins specifically to him and cry out to him for mercy and to be washed with the blood of Jesus. John promises if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must identify our sins. We must admit that we have the seed of every sin in us. We must acknowledge what our sin deserves before the Lord. But I want to leave you with this. This could be a very discouraging passage. This could be a, this, you may be sitting here, you may be watching online, you may be thinking, I don't like hearing these things. Well, our flesh doesn't like hearing those things. But the good news is if you're in Christ, you are already a new creation. You have got to think properly about what you already are. That's, that's the most motivating thing in the world. You are no longer a child of wrath. You are no longer a son or daughter of disobedience. Now, I want to ask you this morning, if you're not in Christ, if you've never come to him, if you've never trusted in him, then you are under the wrath of God and you need to flee to him. Um, you must flee to him for that. But I want to encourage you that you would live this week ahead and all the days that the Lord gives you, acknowledging, as Luther said, the thousand devils within, but recognizing that God has already given you everything you need to put off what is old and to put on what is new, even as you've already been renewed. I need that. You need that. We all need that in our Christian fellowship. May the Spirit of God give us that grace. Um, in our lives this day. Let me pray for us. 
Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that these are precious truths and yet cutting truths. Who among us has not been guilty of committing the sins in these lists, Lord? We have, all of us, um, been like an unclean thing. But Lord, we confess our sins this morning and we ask you for more power that you would help us to live as new creatures in Christ. Father in heaven, would you help us to take seriously our sin, the nature of it, what it deserves? Would you give us the grace to put it off and to put on those virtues that are found in the Lord Jesus? Oh God, would you please conform us to the image of your Son? We pray these things in his name. Amen.